This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. According to the USDA, wild hogs cause $1.5 billion of agricultural and environmental damage each year. Have you seen wild hogs damaging your property? Do you know how to legally get rid of wild hogs and other nuisance animals? Today on the show, we'll welcome Chris Godwin with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Control to answer your wild hog questions. And Dr. Major's here ready to with pet questions. And we always like to hear any encounters you've had with nature. So you can join our conversation this morning with your phone call. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Dr. Major. Uh, we're going to start off with an email here that says, our elderly female beagle has urinary incontinence and she is fixed. Are there some remedies to try? Excellent question. And it's fairly common to see this in, in, a, in an older female. Uh, basically, it has to do with the lack of tone uh, in the bladder, the neck of the bladder. And there are uh, remedies for that. The reason for this, or one of the main reasons, is that in a spade or fixed female, the ovaries are removed and uh, along with the uterus and removes estrogen, uh, primary source of estrogen, from the body. Uh, there's a drug called proin. Proin uh, is a long name of phenylpropanolamine, but proin seems to work really well. Usually the... the uh, Incontinence occurs. <clears throat> excuse me, when when the dog is laying down or sitting down, and just all of a sudden you may see a fairly large amount of liquid. I would talk to your vet about that, and there should be some some remedies for that. Primarily, the use of proin. All right, um, and the personal thing. The other day, I saw an, a a bug that I had never seen before, but I think is fairly common, and um, it's the Katie did, or they also call it the bush cricket. I think. Have Have you ever? Do you have one of those in your collection? Oh, absolutely. They're very common, and they're making a lot of noise right now. It's call it a bush Katie did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they have the kind of the long long legs. They're green usually, not always, uh, and uh, they they make a lot of noise. <laughs> That's what, well, but, this this uh, one it's I a found typical summer noise. This one I found on my car going to lunch one day. My car is kind of an alien green, so I don't know if he he liked that because it matched his. But it was amazing to me how well, I'm, and I'm sure they camouflage themselves as leaves because that, that, it really looked like a walking leaf on my car. I was it was just fascinated by that. Then the other strange thing was, so I saw him on the car, and you know, and sometimes when you're driving, you feel bad when a bug gets caught on your windshield or whatever. 
but uh, didn't see him. But then when I got back from lunch, uh, he was still there. So he, he either has very strong legs or found some little spot to to uh, get out of the of the wind. Because I thought for sure, you know, going 45, 50 miles an hour, he would have been sucked off of there. Right. But uh, but like I said, it was amazing. I had never seen one before. I'd heard the phrase Katie did and know how much racket they make. But it was amazing how well he, uh, he or she could uh, camouflage themselves if need be. Pretty amazing to be able to hang on. That's also yep. amazing. All right. Um, so let's talk about the heat. Um, you, we, we know humans are suffering with the heat, and we talk frequently about what to do with your, you know, for your pets when it gets so hot. <clears throat> and uh, now is the time, I think, that people need to think about it. Remind us again kind of basic things. Shade and water are absolute necessities if your pet's going to be outside, I imagine. That's the uh, main thing foremost, I guess, having ability of shade, maybe some way to move some air uh, as well. Sometimes people have, you know, fans that out on the patio or close to where the dogs are. But protection from the sun and adequate water. Make sure that the water container is fresh, but also cannot be turned over easily. Uh, that that could be a problem, certainly, if they turn it over. Uh, they would be without water, you know, until you got, before you could refill it. But it, it is a problem, and the main thing, too, is, is be careful when you're exercising your dog. A lot of dogs love to chase bumpers or uh, tennis balls, whatever. Be very cognizant of the fact that they can dehydrate rapidly and can build a pretty high body temperature. The other thing that I'll mention, which we've talked about before, is going on walks with your dog. Try, if possible, uh, to have them walk on the grass. Um, asphalt gets very hot and can burn the pads on, on these uh, dogs. So I think that uh, from the time we've talked about this on the air in the past, a sign that uh, dogs uh, might be getting too hot is excessive panting? You know, excessive panting, uh, lethargy, in other words, just uh, lying down. We've all, already seen several cases of heat stroke. Uh, where the temperature, you know, rapidly rises over 104 to 105 degrees body temperature. And that cannot be sustained for a long period of time. And it goes without saying that um, the car is, it can be a very bad enemy because it heats up so quickly. Uh, if you have a dog or cat in the car, and we're talking about, what, 130, 140 degrees in a car in a short period of time. So that can be a real problem. Yeah, I think anyone who opens their car door after, you know, having it sit in a parking lot somewhere for a couple hours in this heat, it, I mean, you can just feel the heat pour out of your car, and to think that you would subject your pet, even with a window rolled down to that, is, is kind of not good thinking, I think. So that definitely... Right. And even with uh, air conditioner on, uh, sometimes a, a pet can step on the control, and some cars, air conditioner will turn off after a certain period of time, so... Be care very careful, and I, I would suggest not leaving uh, your pet in the car, even with the air conditioner running. Okay. All right. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got a caller this morning, and it's our friend John who calls in from Ridgeland. John, what do you have for us today? Well, I have a note from the infinitely fascinating but sometimes sinister insect world. This is nothing to panic about. But for the first time in a long while, there have been some native cases of malaria in the United States. 
a, a few, as I understand it, in Florida and a few in Texas. Uh, this is uh, potentially serious, but not serious now. Malaria was once a, uh, a major problem all through many large parts of the South. Uh, let's stop this before large spraying programs with the, the terrible consequences they can have for wildlife take place. Just remember, and one tends to forget this in bones like the extreme heat, to keep good mosquito hygiene going as, as far as uh, standing water. I know it evaporates quickly now, maybe in your yard, and uh, keep on our guard, even though that's rather far from our thoughts at the moment. All right, uh, John, good point. And uh, Dr. Major, we've talked about this before on the show as well, that humans are not the only ones bothered by uh, mosquitoes, that uh, that's, they attack our pets too. So it's good to have, uh, you know, John mentioned a couple of them, but good mosquito hygiene around your yard to kind of keep the populations down. But what uh, what potential harm could they do to our pets? Well, here, here's the other thing, and appreciate John's comments, but, you know, the pets have been training up until the last few days that they're standing water in a lot of places. So as much as possible, uh, empty those. Uh, of course, a lot of people have bird baths, which are fine. need to have fresh water in that. And fresh water in your dogs uh, and dog and cat water once they're outside. But mosquitoes uh, notoriously uh, transfer heartworm disease. They pick up the microprolaria, which are microscopic uh, from a dog that's infected. And it stays in the mosquito, and they transfer it either back to the same dog or to another dog. So mosquitoes uh, are a very uh, important vector, if you will, of disease. And there are other diseases as well that could be spread. Uh, cats can get heartworms, and that's uh, an issue that we have with the outside cats. So be very aware of mosquitoes and very aware from personal standpoint as well. I don't think there's been any cases of malaria uh, in people uh, reported uh, in Mississippi. Uh, I think Texas and Florida are the only places right now that it's been reported. But uh, as John said, good mosquito hygiene means trying to uh, eliminate the places where they will reproduce and uh, cause a problem. Yeah, because I would say uh, malaria is certainly a concern, but just regular mosquito bites are, are, are annoying to humans, that's for sure. And so it's stagnant water they're looking for. So if you do have pet bowls out there or, as you mentioned, a bird bath, if you're changing that at a regular schedule, uh, that shouldn't be a breeding ground for mosquitoes. Am I right on that? Should not. Things like uh, uh, junk tires, mm-hmm. uh, they, they get a fair amount of water. Uh, in them, and they can certainly be a place for them to breed. Old cans or old uh, buckets uh, that are not uh, turned over that can hold water certainly could be a source. So there there are things I always worry about. It doesn't stay there long, but, you know, your gutters on houses, sometimes these gutters can hold water, and certainly that would be an area that mosquitoes could uh, reproduce. So be very aware. So now we're going to welcome back to our show a guest. Chris Godwin is with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Control. So, Chris, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Give us a little idea about your background and the work that you do with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Dr. Majors. Good to hear from you guys. Haven't been there and seen you all in a while. (laughs) So, um, 
yeah, I got into this crazy field. Um, you know, I started off as a wildlife biologist um, originally with the U.S. Forest Service and had an opportunity to um, change direction a little bit with uh, Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, Wildlife Services um, under USDA. Um, so I, I jumped at that opportunity, and um, 23 years later, I'm, I'm still in the same same position um, here in Mississippi doing, um, you know, a lot of human-wildlife conflict and interaction stuff. So um, how does uh, the – and is there a list? Does the USDA create a list of nuisance animals? No, the, the, we leave that to the states. So the, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks actually has a, a list of what they consider state nuisance species. Um, you know, for our program, basically any time – you know, somebody has, you know, a conflict, um, no matter what the species is, as far as, you know, mammals, birds, that kind of thing, you know, then they're free to call us and, and we'll talk them through, you know, what their options are to resolve the conflict. And um, so what basically are the criteria that states use to determine if something is a nuisance animal? Um, it varies from state to state. So first they'll look at whether the animal is federally listed or not. Um, they'll have to do some population biological survey information to determine, you know, the size of the population, you know, and, and does it warrant um, the ability to be considered a nuisance. And in Mississippi, you know, nuisance species can be taken um, by private landowners as long as they own the land, you know, year round. So animals like beaver, um, are a nuisance species. Wild hogs are considered a nuisance species. Um, but something like a raccoon actually has a hunting season. So you can't, you know, take a raccoon all year long, only during the designated, you know, trapping or hunting seasons for raccoon. Um, so you have to pay attention to the, you know, the laws of the state that you're in and, and what's considered a nuisance and what's not. In some states, wild hogs are actually considered a, a, a hunting type species and not a nuisance um, so, again, it, could, it varies from state to state. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and today we're visiting with Chris Godwin with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Control. Going to be talking about wild hogs and other nuisance animals. So if you have a question for our guest or a pet question that Dr. Major can help you with, email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So let's talk a little bit about wild hogs in the U.S. Um, were they always considered a nuisance species? And I'm guessing the answer to that might be no if they're not listed as nuisance species in all the different states. Yeah. So, you know, the, the theory is that pigs were brought in by Hernando de Soto and the early explorers as a food source. And some of those animals escaped during the travels, you know, through the, the southeastern United States and established, you know, local populations. Um, and then over time, there's also a theory that, you know, some pigs were brought in from Russia and you get that Russian wild boar. Um, so it, it depends where in the country you're at, um, you know, as to where and how things got started. Um, you know, the United States generally had fairly low pig populations until about the early 1980s. And then we started seeing this, you know, tremendous growth. And a lot of that growth is attributed to, to humans, you know, moving pigs around, one, for a food source, and two, because it was an opportunity to, to hunt something different. Um, and then, you know, those pigs, you know, reproductively exploded um, until now, you know, here in Mississippi, we've got pigs in all 82 counties. You've got them, 
you know, all across the southeast. We've had pigs in Michigan and upstate New York. Um, you know, even some of the states out west, Canada has had some pigs. Um, so that that animal has literally exploded across the landscape, not only because of its high reproductive rate, but also because humans have moved those animals, you know, around the country. So uh, when we talk about the wild hogs, if you could kind of give us an idea of what they, they look like. They're quite large animals from what I understand. They can be. Um, on average, you know, a female will go 150 to 250 pounds as an adult. Um, the boars will get larger. And, and we have had pigs, you know, 350, 400 pounds isn't out of the question um, here in Mississippi. Um they have a, you know, pretty fast growth rate. So within a year or so, you know, they can get to that 100, 150 size class um, in the right habitat conditions. Um, the piglets, you know, pretty small um, and the litter size, you know, generally is four to eight, but it, it can, you know, be smaller or larger than that. The female will start reproducing at age of six months. And after that, she generally can have, you know, two litters a year. Um, and so, you know, when you start looking at the reproductive growth and, and just the size of the animal and what they eat, a lot of times we consider them kind of a forced vacuum cleaner. So anything that they can get their mouth on, they're going to eat snakes, lizards, um, fawns, um, acorns, you know, whatever. There's not much restriction in, in terms of their diet. So if you would, give us an idea of, of how much destruction or how serious a problem the, the wild hogs are for, say, agriculture. Here in Mississippi, it's tremendous. Um, it, it's every crop that I'm aware of has sustained some type of, of pig damage um, where pigs are present. Um, so corn is always a big one. Peanuts is a huge one. Um, rice. Um, we've seen them in sweet potatoes. We've seen damage to cotton, um, pecans, um, soybeans, you know, just about all of our major crop um, agricultural produce here in Mississippi um, has had pig damage um, where pigs are present. So it's it's a tremendous amount of money. And when you think about, you know, somebody that's trying to put corn in the ground, and we've seen this kind of damage where they plant, um, and then that night the pigs will go down the rows and just pull the kernels out of the ground. And you come in the next day, you know, and, and, and you're replanting, you know, up to 30 acres. And at $250, $300 an acre, you know, that cost is pretty substantial to, to an agricultural producer. So it, it can be really bad. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Chris Godwin with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Control, talking in this segment about wild hogs and some of the damage that they can do. So, Chris, what are some of the things that can be done to help landowners with uh, these uh, wild hogs? Yeah, so the, the best tool that we currently have on the books is trapping. Um, and there's a lot of different methods and a lot of different types of traps available, depending on what, you know, someone can afford um, in you know, those are all available. You can look through the Mississippi Extension site, um, wild, well, I think it's wildpiginfo.com. Um, you know, our website um, under USDA has got information, and you can just general Google stuff up. So, um, but you can make your own, or you can buy, you know, pre-manufactured traps. 
Um, and then there's a ton of different types of camera systems that you can use um, to go with those traps. Um, where it's legal, you can night shoot, um, you know, and that's using high power rifle and, and thermal equipment. And, and there are, you know, different things available um, under those guidelines. And it would take us hours to talk about, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's really the two options right now. We, we've been trying to work on um, a, a registered pesticide, but I think we're still several years away before any kind of a toxicant um, is going to be legally available um, for the control of wild pigs. So, um, but as far as the trapping goes, you know, we do that um, for various cooperators. The Mississippi Department of Agriculture and Commerce has um, a really good program up and running right now where they have a trap loan program for agricultural producers. Um, and you can look at their website for more information on how that works and how to participate in that. Um, you know, and then any individual can do it on their own um, within the guidelines of the law and, and baiting of the traps and such. So those are the things that you have to pay attention to. Um, so do you have, Chris, do you have tips on how um, landowners can mitigate the damage that these wild hogs are doing? Really, it's it's a matter of, of trying to trap and remove um, as soon as you know you've got sign of pigs on the property, whether that's wallowing or crop damage or, or whatever it may be. Um, it's really frustrating. And, and as a landowner that has pigs on, on our property as well, um, they're here today, gone tomorrow sometimes. And so you have to spend, you know, quite a bit of time keeping up with, with whether the animals are there. And once they're there, then you're investing time in, in trying to pre-bait, get your trap set up, um, you know, and catching those animals and, and working with the neighbors um, because those animals aren't just staying on one property. They're probably moving, you know, throughout multiple properties. And so, you know, working together a lot of times um, where, where you can um, is pretty beneficial. And, you know, it's a frustrating and expensive process. So, and that's where programs like ours and Ag and Commerce, Delta Wildlife is another one, um, where you can take advantage of cost share or, um, you know, expertise, um, expertise through Mississippi Extension. Um, all of those are avenues that, that the public has, you know, to, to try and get more information and assistance when, when you start having to work with these kind of problems. We've got uh, Debbie back on the line from Sandy Hook. Debbie, it's your turn. Go ahead, please. Thank you. I'd like to ask my question. I might hang up and listen to the response. Okay. This is for Chris. I was curious to know, I've been told that those wild hogs are excellent for eating, but I, I haven't experienced it myself. But my question is, they say you never eat them during the summer because the worms have, the meat has worms. What about, but it's okay during the winter. Is this true or is this just a, a fable? Thank you. Thanks, uh, Debbie. Good to hear from you this morning. So, Chris, are these wild hogs edible at any time during the year? Yeah, I mean, you can eat them, but this is a, a good point and a subject that we need to talk about is the disease factor. Um, and, and Dr. Major can jump in here on this anytime as well. But you know, we know from our testing that, that pigs are loaded with a variety of diseases. Um, and some of the diseases that we've tested for is swine brucellosis, pseudorabies, 
Um, we're currently looking at classical and African swine fever in, in a couple of areas. We've tested for leptospirosis, toxoplasmosis. I mean, they've had all of it um, except for the classical and African swine fever so far. So, yes, you can eat it, but you need to cook it well done. And if you're going to handle wild hogs, you need to wear gloves and, and some protective gear because um, a lot of these diseases you won't know that you've picked up, you know, for five or six months. And then you start feeling really cruddy, kind of like the flu. And then, you know turns out that, that you end up with swan brucellosis or, or one of these other diseases and you end up, you know, on a heavy dose of antibiotic or whatever it may be for an extended period of time. So the worm thing in the summer, I, I haven't heard, although it wouldn't surprise me, but again, because pigs are, they're eating everything out there and they're just loaded with all kinds of parasites and, you know, bacteria and everything else that, um, it, it just, you have to make a personal decision on, on what you want to do with those animals. Um, I will admit, you know, I, I do eat wild hog, but again, you know, we, we cook it well done. We handle those animals with gloves the minute we get to them, um, and we're pretty careful about it. And, um, you know, I would just advise people do the same. We have had a couple human cases in Mississippi of swine brucellosis, and those individuals, you know, most likely got it from, um, you know, taking a, a, a hog and, and butchering it. Um, without the proper gear on. All right, Debbie, thanks for your call. So, uh, Chris, are pigs one of the few animals that, as you say, will eat just about anything? Yeah, I mean, other than maybe an alligator or something. But but pigs, pigs there's a lot of concern that, that pigs have the ability to change our entire ecosystem because if you think about the amount of acorns and things that they eat, you know, that stuff's no longer available to reproduce on the forest floor um, and so you can literally change an entire forest ecosystem, you know, just by having pigs, you know, consuming what they're consuming. Um, and that stuff's not available for our native wildlife species like deer and squirrel, turkey, things like that. So, you know, they're competing with, you know, the food source of our native wildlife um, and, again, have the ability to change the ecosystem you look about, you know, the, the environment that they live in and some of the forests where our streams and stuff are and how much, you know, stuff are they putting into the stream systems in terms of, you know, something like leptospirosis. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that, that we think about as biologists with pigs. It's a concern. I don't know that it's necessarily something that we have to be scared about, um, but we need to think smart about how many animals are on the landscape and is this a good thing? You know, I know there's a lot of folks out there that enjoy, you know, hunting pigs, you know, and it, it's kind of like a lot of other animals where a couple might be okay, but, you know, a few more than a couple gets pretty ugly quick. So, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of different opinions out there, you know, um, from an ag standpoint, from a damage standpoint, you know, they're bad news. Um, and from a native, you know, somebody that likes to deer hunt, turkey hunt, Squirrel hunt, um, you know, for me, um, I see that as a problem, you know, down the road for the species, you know, that, that I like to recreate with. Um, so that's, those are things to be aware of. But again, you know, you can eat pigs, be careful, um, because there's just a lot of things that they're carrying around out there on the landscape that, that could be kind of nasty. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting this hour with Chris Godwin from the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Control, talking about wild hogs. Also, might briefly discuss some other nuisance animals here in a minute, but we do got a couple of uh, 
callers on the line, so we'll start in Rankin County again. Jerry has called in today. Jerry, you're on the air with us, so go ahead, please. Yes, this question is for both Chris and Dr. Major could uh, throw some input into it also. And then I understand that the wild hogs are a real problem all over the country, and especially in rural areas. But since most of us live in urban areas, I'm wondering about the feral or near-feral cat situation because it's nothing to stop by a convenience store or see apartment complex or any any place and just several cats are running around and and roaming the streets, if you will, early in the morning. And, uh, and I'm wondering if there's a national program for education or and then for control humanely, and then with Dr. Major, is the veterinarians in Mississippi, is there an association that y'all could possibly do a free spade and neuter clinic or something like that? And I'll thank y'all, and I'll listen to your response. All right, uh, Jerry, thanks for the call. Chris, let's uh, start with you. Could something like a cat ever be considered a nuisance animal, and are there things that you can help out folks with that, that are bothersome but not necessarily officially a nuisance animal? Yeah, so cats, you know, it depends on what side of the fence, I guess, you sit on with it. They are considered a nuisance, and in, in parts of the country, um, they are controlled because they're preying on endangered protected species, um, like the, the beach mouse um, is one in particular. Um, so, yeah, there are times when they are considered a nuisance, um, and they're also considered, you know, a, a threat to, to wildlife. Um, and you look at the number of birds that feral cats take, you know, in a year's time, um, it's pretty substantial. And, and feral cats can have a very negative impact on a lot of native bird species. So from a wildlife standpoint um, and from the, the Wildlife Society, which is our professional organization, you know, feral cats are a huge problem. Um now, the other side of the fence is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that love cats. Um, and there are cat colonies, you know, even here in the state of Mississippi. And there has been, you know, some groups that have, you know, done the, the, the vaccinate, you know, neuter release type programs. The problem with some of those programs is, you know, it's great for the cats that don't reproduce, but they're still out there, you know, predating on birds and um, some of the other animals, you know, that we're, we're really trying to to keep population stable on. So um, it, again, it depends on the side of the fence that you fall on. There, there's a, a, a group of folks out there that love cats and, you know, like these feral cat colonies and like knowing they're out there. Then the other side is, you know, there, there are, you know, problems with some of these feral cat populations. So, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Major and see what, what his thoughts are. Yeah, so Dr. Major, you know, again, we've talked about this, but stress the importance of, of spay and neuter to help control this the, the feral cat population. You know, as as Chris said, this is a very touchy thing sometimes with certain uh, groups, but there are people that do help protect the feral colonies. They trap, but, but that needs to be done. They need to be trapped. They need to be spayed, neutered, and vaccinated. There's a lot of disease in most of these colonies, Uh Usually the infectious rhinotracheitis, which is a herpes virus, panleukopenia, uh, feline leukemia. So these are all things you have to consider. Uh, but, yes, I agree that they do uh, prey on birds, uh, other types of animals, but that uh, there are, are groups that will 
uh, spay and neuter uh, at a nominal price or, or even for free. But it's difficult in a lot of cases to uh, to trap these cats. They're pretty smart. Uh, and it's not unusual for people to think they're doing the right thing and have a colony in their own backyard with 20, 40 cats. And that's where we get in a lot of problems. They may not be able to uh, get the cats trapped and get them uh, vaccinated. So it can be a problem, and I, I recommend if you're going to have cats that are outside, definitely uh, spay, neuter, and vaccinate, uh, that sort of thing. All right, very good. Let's uh, get another caller on the line. We'll talk this time with Donna, who calls in from the road this morning. Go ahead, Donna. You're on the air with us. Um, yes. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my first question was has already been answered about uh, eating the meat from a wild hog, and um, so I learned quite a bit there. Um, and then for Dr. Major, I have a small uh, calico cat. Uh, she's an inside cat, neutered, and uh, she's having problems keeping her food down. And uh, I've been feeding her in small amounts more frequently, but she tends to um, go up if she eats too much. Uh, thoughts on that? Well, one thing, I'll go back to the uh, uh, wild hog as far as that. Please don't feed your dogs uh the raw meat. We've had situations where people that are hunting will feed the dogs raw meat, and of course that's loaded usually with what trichina and other types of parasites. So I would be very careful because we have seen some dogs that were sick from that. Uh, as far as the cat is concerned, I, have you tried different foods uh, for that cat? Well, I've moved up to a, a higher grade um, sensitive stomach kind of thing. Um, I've read that maybe wet food would actually work better. And it may it may help. In other words, feeding a canned food or soft food. Small amounts. Now, the other thing would be there may be some... How old is this cat, you said? Uh, she, I think she was three in uh, okay. January. Okay. Uh, I suspect it would be wise, and this is just uh, my opinion, based on the fact that we do see some cats that have this issue, if she's throwing up regularly, you really should get your vet to do uh, a thorough exam, possibly even x-rays. There may be some medication that will help, but try the soft food, see how she does with that, and uh, if that's not helping, definitely get her in to see your vet, okay? That's going to be my plan. Thanks, Dr. Major. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, and our guest today is Chris Godwin from the USDA. We've got a couple callers on the line, so let's jump right back on the phone lines. We start in Jackson. Morris has called in today. Good morning, Morris. What do you have for us? Uh, Yes, we're having mold issues. There's kind of molds all around the community. And, you know, we're using different traps and different techniques, but we're having difficulty catching them. We have caught some in uh, this past fall using these various traps, but uh, this spring we're not having a lot of luck, and it's hard to find the trails. You know, they say put it on the major trail, 
but they seem to be a little deeper and they're harder to find. So I just wondered if there were any suggestions on how to trap, get rid of these molds. Yeah, moles are moles are really tough. Um, I would, you know, suggest that if you're able to go to kind of like your local co-op and get um, like an insecticide type thing, and you can talk to them about, you know, what they have available and what will work. But moles eat meat, so we do M&M. So um, if you can get rid of some of the grubs and those kinds of things in your yard or wherever it is you've got the, the issue at, um, and if it's affordable, you know, that, that's another option along with the trapping. So um, they're a tough critter to work with, and, and we run into this with some landowners. Um, and then we also run into it with voles, or the, the animal starts with a V, and you think voles vegetables because those eat, you know, more grass-type seed root type material. So depending on which one you've got, you've got to look at, you know, what, what method to use and know the difference between moles and voles. So, but that, that's an option for moles. All right, Morris, thanks for your call. Let's move on next. Uh, Eric from Liberty has called in. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air. So go ahead. Thank you, sir. Uh, I saw in the uh, co-op, they had a uh, pamphlet, and they were saying that uh, wild hogs do $66 million worth of damage in Mississippi every, uh, every year. But uh, what, what I wanted to say, too, was uh, if, when people, if they encounter a wild hog, be very careful because if you shoot them things, especially in the face and stuff where that army is, uh, that hog is one of the most dangerous animals in the world. Another thing about people love to place their garbage at night for the next day for pickup, that's a bad thing. Throwing food out the window and stuff when they drive down the highway. I just wanted to mention that. I'm going to hang up for that time constraint. Thank you. All right, Eric, thanks for the call. Chris, that makes good sense that, uh, you know, we need to respect all kind of wildlife, but when there's something as, as kind of large as these wild hogs, um, best to just try to avoid them, I guess. Yeah, and, and he's absolutely right. You know, trash open, you know, on the roads, you know, dump sites out in the woods, anything like that, you know, is, is just another food source for them to take advantage of. Um, and an injured pig, you know, can definitely be um, something to be very wary of. Um, you know, they're like any other animal. They're, they're going to try and defend themselves when cornered or, or you know, um, hurt. And so, yeah, you do need to take precautions and, and really think about, you know, how you're approaching that animal, um, you know, and, and what your best course of action is. Got another caller on the line. John from Hernando looks like he wants a follow-up comment on moles. John, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, I just, I've had some experience with moles. Uh, they're a real pain. It's difficult to get rid of them. Somebody mentioned using pesticides, but uh, my success is been using a frequency device that you insert into the ground right near the run and you need a couple of these maybe two or three and they just run for days they put out a, a thumping noise which the moles interpret as a, uh, a some sort of opponent a threat a threat to them and they will scatter and take off and i guarantee they'll be gone they'll leave your property they won't come back all right, John, thanks for the suggestion. Chris, have you ever heard of uh, using the vibration method to help control moles? I, yeah, I have heard of it. Um, I have no experience with it. So if it's working for him, great. You know, and it may be another tool in the box for, you know, some of the listeners to try if they're having that issue. What, uh, what other kind of animals do you get uh, complaints about in terms of uh, homeowners and property owners uh, having issues? 
um, this time of year, we start getting calls about raccoons and addicts, um, and they're having cubs, and, and um, that that's always an interesting one to, to try and work with that. Um, you know, snakes end up in weird places sometimes, So, um, and a lot of times that's education, um, where people don't understand the difference between venomous and non-venomous snakes, and, you know, what, what to do in each of those types of cases. Um, snakes in the yard is another one. Squirrel damage is another one that, that we frequently get. Um, bats um, this time of year um, in homes. And I know recently you all had Mike McDowell on, and Mike is just spectacular with, with those kind of issues. Um, yeah, just, you know, animals, baby animals in places that, you know, people aren't used to seeing them. You know, we're going to have fawns all over the place here soon. So that's going to be another one where, again, it's public education. A lot of times just leave them alone. Um, they're fine. Um, so it, you know, we work a lot with, you know, beaver and, in um, a lot of our work on airports across the state. Um, right now, resident Canada geese is another big issue, um, that, that we work with this time of year because all of the goslings have, have started to grow up and, and now you started with five geese and you have a hundred. Um, and what do you do? Um, so those kinds of issues, especially this time of year, just a lot of the, the baby critter um, stuff is where we end up doing a lot of public education. But uh, as you mentioned, it's good if, if someone's having some issues with uh, with nuisance animals that uh, to do a, a search online and find some of the critter catchers that are out there, because that's I think would be a good a good place to start. So we've got about uh, two minutes left. Yeah, you can go ahead. Yep. You can call the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, and they have a list of, of private nuisance control folks. Um, you can look online. You just need to be careful that you make sure you get some recommendations. You're more than welcome to call our office at area code 662-325-3014, and we can put you in touch with someone that we have um, close to your area that, that can help you um either talk you through something or actually come out and take a look at the problem and, and give you some recommendations or, you know, we can actually do some work. Um, yeah. So like I said, there's folks out there in the private sector that are really good. And I know y'all had Mike on and, mm-hmm. and I love working with Mike. Um, he's, he's great. Um, and there's several other companies out there that we've worked with over the years that, that do really good work. Um, yeah. So you've got lots of options. So I say we got about a minute left, maybe to wrap up with the wild hogs or how would you, rate the efforts to control the wild hog population is it getting that it's harder to control are we making any progress in areas we're making progress this isn't a, a problem that one agency or, or one person can solve and that's why it's important that you know we're all trying to work together with our different programs um and that's what it's going to take to try and reduce the issue down um, there's just no way that one tool and one group has enough resources that, that can control it. So, um, and I'm proud to say here in Mississippi, you know, we do work really well together with private, state, federal, um, all of us, you know, pretty much stay in touch with what each other's doing and, and where we can help each other. So um, we're really lucky. All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. I always like to remind you that if you're ever out and about in nature and you see something that you don't know what it is and want our help trying to identify it, if you would, grab your smartphone, take a picture of it, and send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll see if we can't help you identify what it is that you've captured on your phone. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio with funding provided in part by listeners. 
To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, engineered by Abram Nanny, and our call screener was Rudolph Runnels. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guest Chris Godwin from the U.S. Department of Agriculture Animal Control, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.